In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. So, God willing, today we're going to continue studying in the book of Exodus. Last time, you know which chapters we studied? What? One and two. One and two, good. And so today we're going to study chapters three and four, God willing. Does anyone want to give a brief summary of what we studied in the first two chapters? He had killed uh, an Egyptian, and then he left because uh, he just felt like he had messed up God's plan and everything was ruined. And then 40 years pass again, and he's 80 now, and God's like, now it's time for you to get moving. And so he goes back to Egypt, and then kind of, well, I mean, we didn't get to that part yet, but or at least when he initiates the plagues, right? Is that? Perfect. <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, so, so the major points is we know that Moses is born. We know that the Hebrews are slaves in Egypt. We know that um, Moses knows that God wants him to liberate the Hebrews from the Egyptians. We know that Moses tried to do it prematurely through violence, which didn't work. He escaped Egypt. He went and lived for 40 years as a shepherd. He married a Midianite woman, um, and he had a son with her. Um, and, 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 and that's kind of where we, that, that, that's kind of where we left off from last time. Okay. So chapter 3 is one of the most famous chapters in the Bible because it, what happens that's special in this chapter? The burning bush. Good, the burning bush. Okay, so it says, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the back of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Okay, so what do we know about this mountain Horeb and why is it called the mountain of God? What's going to happen later on this mountain? God will appear and Huh? The who said it? 10 commandments? Okay, the good the 10 commandments, right? Later on Moses is going to go up to this mountain, Mount Horeb, and he's going to spend 40 days there, right? Up on top of the mountain and God is going to give him the 10 commandments. Okay? This is the same place of the burning bush, okay? And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire from the midst of a bush. So he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, but the bush was not consumed. Okay, so he saw this bush had flames, but it did not burn up the bush. Then Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush does not burn. Okay, um, so we said earlier, that now Moses is 80 years old, and he has been 40 years in the desert, okay? And the last thing that Moses is expecting is for God to ask him to do anything, right? Because he believed that when he was 40 years old, 40 years ago, when he was still in Egypt, that that was the time when he was ready, right? He was younger, he was influential, he, was, he had this desire to free the people, and he believed that the other people knew that he was the one to free them and that it was the time to do it. And that's when he took matters into his own hands and through violence he killed an Egyptian man and then 
he had to flee when Pharaoh actually was trying to kill him as a result. So now, 40 years after this, okay, Moses is an old man. He has been living away from Egypt for 40 years. He married a Midianite woman. He has a family. He's living as a shepherd in the desert, and he is a nobody. You know, 40 years ago, if you mentioned the name Moses, maybe everybody knew who Moses was in Egypt. Now, if you mention the name Moses, nobody knows who he is, okay? So it is at this point where God chooses to call Moses formally to the service. It's at this point, okay? And so from Moses' perspective, okay, um, he never imagined that this was still on the table for him. He never thought that there would be a time in the future where he would actually be called for this mission. He, he had believed that it, the time had already passed and he failed, okay? Um, God is speaking now to Moses through this burning bush. And the burning bush symbol, it has, it has a lot of different meanings in the church. Many, many different symbols um, are, 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 are referred to by this uh, burning bush. St. Hilary and Tertullian, they say that the bush represents the burning church, the church that is constantly attacked by the fire of oppression but is not consumed or destroyed. So in that sense, the bush is like the church who is always being attacked by the world, and yet the, 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 the church is not destroyed. The gates of Hades do not prevail against it. St. Augustine, he believes that it refers to the glory of God that dwelt in the Jewish people, yet it did not abolish the hardness of their thorny hearts. In that sense, that it's like God is with the Jews. God is with the Hebrew people, and yet they remain an obstinate and stubborn people all throughout their history, so that even though God is present with them, and yet they remain stubborn and rebellious against him to the very end, even to the point of crucifying the Savior, crucifying the, the Son of God who was incarnate among them. St. Clement of Alexandria, he sees that the bush is a revelation of the virgin birth of Christ, and this is one of the most famous and popular symbols, okay? The Lord is represented by the fire, like the fire of his divinity is represented by the flame, who was born of the virgin, who was represented by the bush, but, but St. Mary did not lose her virginity at the birth of Christ. So it's like she was not, like her, her virginity was not consumed, right? She maintained her virginity, even after giving birth to Christ and having Christ in her womb, okay? So, so again, you have this representation of the fire of the divinity and then the bush that represents St. Mary, yes. Sorry, uh, which saint said that? Was which one was lost? St. Clement of Alexandria. St. Mm -hmm. Cyril of Alexandria, he believed that the burning bush represented the divine incarnation, the divinity of God united with humanity without devouring it. This is actually similar to the symbol of the censer. You know the symbol, what is the symbolism of the censer? So St. Mary is represented by the censer and the coal is Christ in her womb, yes? And there's one extra detail. Yes, yeah, so the, the, the coal represents the, the, the human nature of Christ, right? The humanity of Christ. And the fire in the coal represents the divinity of Christ. So in the same way here, this uh, burning bush would be that the fire represents the divinity of the Lord that is um, one with his humanity, right? But one does not consume the other. One does not destroy the other. They are both coexisting together. St. John Chrysostom, 
He saw in the bush a living image of the resurrection of Christ, who having a real body and experienced an actual death, was not permanently imprisoned by death. So it's like the, 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 the power of the resurrection working in the human being, working in the, in the person of Jesus Christ, who allowed him to uh, rise from the dead. So even though, um, you know, there are, many, there are many beautiful symbols for this. The bush was full of thorns, and the Lord dwelt within it, okay? And, and this is another symbol, right? We can think of maybe from a more spiritual perspective when it comes to like practical, like our practical lives. The, the, the thorny bush represents like the human being that is full of weaknesses, that is full of flaws and, and sins. And yet God is still able to light the fire of his divinity within us who are weak and sinful and work within us. And St. Ambrose, he speaks about this. He says, why should we despair? God who speaks in man spoke in the burning bush full of thorns. He did not despise the bush. He shines in my thorns. He, he who talks is indeed a consuming fire. In this sense that God is speaking and using each one of us for the ministry. I mean, think about from the perspective of, of God, right? And he is to manifest himself in the world. In what way does he manifest? In what way does he show himself? And actually, he shows himself always through, like, the meekest, the simplest, the lowest. This is always how we see the Lord manifesting himself. He is born in a manger. He is born in a low place. He is born in a very poor family. He chooses those who are poor and uneducated. He goes after those people who are sinners and harlots and thieves and, and, and adulterers. And those people are the ones that he spends most of his time with. In every way, he manifested himself with humility and meekness, okay? And so here also, when he manifests himself to Moses, he is not manifesting in some glorious light that is coming from heaven, but he manifests in the weakest thing, which is this thorny bush, which had no significance, which was no different than any other bush. It wasn't even some special kind of plant. There was nothing unique or special about this. It could have been just any bush. And yet the Lord chose to appear in this just as the Lord uses us and appears in us and works in us, even though we are unworthy of, of him doing so. Yes. I have a question that is related to this. So um, we, through communion, we are gaining this immortality, right? Um, are, are we, because this is the, um, related to the idea of the burning bush, because we are, uh, consuming Christ through the Eucharist. Are we gaining immortality or because again, if, uh, if we take communion, we go out, someone might, uh, you know, end our lives as uh, our bodily lives. Uh, how is an immortality manifested in the communion? Yes. Yeah, so God is the source of life, right? And he, he said, when he said to the Samaritan woman that he is the fountain of living water, and that everyone who would drink of him would never thirst, right? So God, when he created us as spirit, the spirit by its nature is not limited the way the flesh is. Like the flesh over time will deteriorate, will, will grow old, and will cease to function, right? And die, okay? But the spirit is beyond the limitations of the flesh. So our spirit continues, okay? But the question is, when we say that Christ and God is the source of life, is it'll continue in what state? In what state will it continue? For us to truly have life, it doesn't mean that we simply live forever, right? It doesn't mean that our existence continues forever. 
Because someone, you know, so, someone like Judas, for instance, his existence continues forever, right? But his eternal existence is one of suffering, right? Whereas we are looking forward to uh, an eternal existence that is truly life, life-giving with the Lord, right? So because the Lord is a source of life, then not only does he give us immortality, but he gives us an immortality in union with him. And that's why it's communion. Communion means that we are in union with God and that we have the characteristics of God that are dwelling within us and that we are growing in these characteristics and that we are partakers of the divine nature, as St. Peter said. So, yes, the, 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 the true eternal life, which is communion with the source of life, who is God, comes through communion. Okay. Um, it also said that the voice that was speaking to him, it was the angel of the Lord. And um, later on in verse 6, the voice speaks, makes it clear that this is actually the voice of God. So this is not just an angel speaking, but this is God himself um, speaking. So when the Lord saw that he turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. This um, is actually very beautiful, how God calls. God calls by name. And he calls like with gentleness, and he calls to get our attention. And the response of Moses is also very nice, where he says, here I am. Like, I am present here. Like, I am listening. Tell me. I'm ready. Tell me what you want me to hear. Um, and this uh, pattern is repeated many, many different places in throughout the scripture, right? In Genesis 22, when God calls Abraham by his name, Abraham responds, here I am. In Genesis 31, when the Lord calls Jacob by his name, Jacob responds, here I am. In 1 Samuel chapter 3, when God calls Samuel by his name, Samuel responds several times, here I am. Okay? In Isaiah chapter 6, when God asks the question, whom shall I send? Isaiah responds and said, here am I. Right? So when, 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 the, when the person is responding with this idea of here I am or here, here am I, what he is saying is, I am listening and ready to receive. Like, I'm ready to receive whatever it is that you want to tell me, right? You know, sometimes people call us by name and we're just kind of distracted and we're not paying attention. We're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, like, we don't really listen, okay? And maybe if you've ever had the experience, because this happens to me all the time, like someone is talking, talking to me, and I, I'm completely oblivious to what they're actually telling me to do. And after they're done, I'm like, what did you say? Like, what did you ask me to do again? And I, don't ha I wasn't paying attention at all, okay? Here, this is to get the attention of Moses because he is about to hear something very critical, crucial, important for him to hear and to understand in this moment. Okay? So he's saying, Moses, Moses. And it's a personal call. It's, it, it makes Moses realize that this person speaking to him knows him intimately, knows him personally, knows who he is, right? Understands him. He's not just a, a stranger that is calling. You know, sometimes when we feel like God doesn't understand us, God doesn't understand my situation. He doesn't understand what I'm experiencing. He doesn't understand how much I wanted something. He doesn't understand the pain that I feel. But actually, here it makes us clear that God sees, he understands, he knows us by name, right? And when he calls to us by name, he wants us to respond, here I am. Like, it perfectly what's, what Samuel said is like, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Speak for your servant listens. I'm listening. Reveal to me what you want me to know. So maybe sometimes God actually is trying to get our attention, right? And he's calling us, but we're not really paying attention. We're not really thinking. We're distracted. 
You know, I'm distracted by my life. I'm distracted by my career. I'm distracted by my relationships. I'm distracted by my problems. And so I'm focusing so much on everything else that even though God is there calling out to us, Moses, 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 you know, calling us by name, but we never respond and say, here I am. You know, we don't respond that way. We, we don't hear the voice of God clearly, right? And we certainly don't necessarily respond in this way. God is getting our attention, okay? So it's important for us when we feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, when we feel that God is speaking, that we pay attention, right? Because God is about to reveal something very important to Moses that he needs to be made aware of that's really going to change his life and the whole course of history. Then he said, Do not draw near this place. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Okay? This is the reason, actually, that we take our shoes off when we enter the sanctuary in the church. It's based on this symbolism here, that as God called Moses to take off his sandals, right, because he is standing on holy ground, so also we do the same when we are in the church to emphasize the fact that the church, like the altar, is holy ground. And the symbolism of this is that at the time, you know, shoes, they were made from um, animal skin, like dead animal and so taking off the shoes means like to cast away the dead worldly things, like the things that the things that we carry with us, the attachments that we carry with us that are like the worldly attachments that, that will perish, the vain things. It's like we are casting these out, right? And so we are not attaching ourselves to them. So when we stand in the presence of God, again, the idea of getting the attention, right? It's like telling Moses, put away the worldly things, put away the distracting things, put away your life and all the concerns you have and just give me your undivided attention because now I will speak to you and you will listen. Moreover, he said, I am, and this is how we know this is the voice of God, right? I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look upon God. It is very important here that God identifies himself. Who is it that is speaking, right? Who is it that is speaking? He is the God of the patriarchs, the God of the ancestors of the Hebrews, so that when Moses hears this voice, he knows exactly who he is speaking to, and God has identified himself, okay? Um, really, nothing else should be needed to identify God. Any, any Hebrew person who knew the history of the Jewish people, whenever he hears that it is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that's speaking, like this is the big deal. Because this is the God who made the covenant. This is the God who promised to Abraham that, that his, his descendants would become like a mighty nation and they would become so plentiful, so many, that you couldn't even count the number of people there were. And all of the patriarchs, they died without having seen the fulfillment of this promise. It was a promise that was made to them that would be fulfilled later on in the lives of their descendants, but they never actually saw it. By the time Jacob died, Right? The Israelites were only a very small number, like 70 people. Okay? That's how many there were when they entered into Egypt. But now, at this time, there were millions. This is like 400 years later. There were millions of them. And, and being ready to led out of Egypt by Moses to really become a nation. Okay? So when he says, I am the God of your father Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this is, again, getting the attention of Moses. It's like, okay, this is a, there's a, something important, very important, that's about to be said. Okay. 
And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites and Hittites and Amorites and Perizzites and Hivites and the Jebusites. Now, therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Okay? So this, like 40 years ago, this would have been like music to Moses' ears. This is exactly what Moses wanted 40 years ago, and he was so prepared. The idea that he's going to be continuing the mission of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The idea that God is going to lead the people out to a land that is flowing with milk and honey. The idea that he's going to liberate the, the Jewish people from slavery, and that he's going to do it all through Moses, and he's going to lead them to this. Like This is like a, like a story of like victory and conquest and all this stuff, and this is exactly what Moses wanted 40 years ago. right? But 40 years later... Okay, like maybe Moses is going to respond differently, and we're going to see that in a second. The other thing to point out is that here God is saying what I saw, the, I see the oppression of my people. You know, I see the oppression of my people. God maybe saw the oppression of his people for a long time, but he never acted. He waited, right? He waited and waited and waited. Why did he wait? Maybe no one can answer the question of God, why do you wait? But God had a reason to wait, whether it would be because he was waiting for Moses to be ready. He was waiting for the promised land to be ready. He was waiting for the, the Hebrews to be ready. He was ready. Whatever it is he was waiting for in combination of things that he was waiting for, God was waiting for the right time. So it wasn't the case that God was abandoning the people or God was not aware. You know, sometimes we suffer and we feel like God is just not paying attention. Like God is not aware of my situation. He just does, he's not he's not involved in it and he doesn't care about it, right? But here God makes it clear that all this time God saw the oppression, but he was just waiting for um the right the right time to act, okay? Um But Moses said to God, "Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt?" So what is Moses doing now? He's asking God, why, uh, why uh, uh, do you want me to go to Pharaoh and uh, bring them uh, uh, and bring them out of Egypt? Yeah, but he, but that's what God is asking him, right? So, yeah. Um, but when he says, "Who am I?" What is he? What is he referring to? What is he trying? What is what is Moses say, trying to say? I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody to go. Which sounds like what? Sounds like humility. Right? Maybe maybe we say that about ourselves when we're trying to sound humble. Who am I to have this? Who am I to to do this service? Or who am I to? Okay. But is it really humility? Why? He's just worried he's going to mess up again. He messed up once, and so he doesn't want to mess up again. And so he's kind of just trying to 
create any excuses because i mean this is the first excuse he comes up with and then he comes up with many more right so okay so number one maybe he just worried about he's not gonna be able to do it okay good what else true humility is obedience yeah true humility is obedience right and we said also that the first time around that moses was clearly prideful because if he felt like it is through his arm and strength that he is going to conquer the Egyptians and re lead this rebellion out, right? He was at a sense of, a sense of like his power, okay? But again, the reason that wasn't humility is because he was trying to rely on himself instead of relying on God. Here also, Moses is doing what? He is relying on himself instead of relying on God, except now when he looks at himself, he doesn't see like a powerful 40-year-old man. He sees, he sees himself as a frail 80-year-old man. And so again, he's looking at himself and saying, well, now I can't do it. In both cases, whether before or after, Moses is completely looking only at himself. Do I have what it takes to do it? Originally, the answer was yes. And now the answer is no. And so he chooses accordingly. He chooses according to his own self-evaluation of himself. Can I do it or can I not do it? If I can do it, I'm the first one to sign up for it. If I can't do it, I'm the last one to sign up for it and pick someone else. Okay. So what sounds like humility, right? Who am I? Like I am unworthy. You know, I am nothing to, to, to go and do this. It's actually pride in disguise. And it's based on fear. It's based on, you know, many things, right? What, else, what other reasons why he, uh, Moses would be reluctant to go? Did we say fear? I thought that's what you said, right? No. <laughs> No, I said uh, humility is obedience. Yeah, but or someone at the beginning they said no, John, you said that, right? You said you said he's afraid to mess up. Yeah, so that's fear. Okay, he lost belief in the cause. Like it's not his fight, you know. Like again, I'm 80 year old. You know, I have a family. Let other people deal with that. Like that's not my business anymore. I had the I had the chance. I was in it. I tried my best. It didn't work out. I moved on. This is now a different kind of life that I have now, and I'm happy and content with where I am. Okay, good. What else? Okay, they they wouldn't take him seriously, right? Like before, he had, you know, the influence. People knew who he was. Maybe for that reason, he felt like people would follow him. Maybe he also felt like people were following him, you know, like people were following me. I have the influence for people to follow me. And now when I go back there, who no even knows the name of Moses? Nobody knows the name of Moses. Who is it that's going to that's gonna follow me now? For what reason are they going to follow this nomadic man, this 80-year-old man who's just coming suddenly out of the desert and he's saying, come on, we're going to get out of here, you know? Good. Any other comments about that? You know, think about it from someone who's like retired, like some 80-year-old person who maybe worked a lot in their life and now they're retired and now they tell you, what, go back to work again. Like go, back, go back and start your job again. And it's a very hard job. You know, he's in his retirement age. Like this is, for him, this is the time to rest. This is not the time to start a brand new thing, right? This isn't the time to, to, to start the hardest work of his life. This is a time for him to just enjoy, right? But that's not in the plan of God. And, and and again, maybe sometimes we think of our lives from that perspective is my goal of life is just to enjoy. You know, my, my goal in life is just to be at a place where I don't have to work. I don't have to do. I don't have to struggle. I don't have to do anything. Right. But actually, 
maybe that's not what God wants for us. Maybe God wants us to continue to work. See, those people who, um, you know, retire from, from, from their jobs, they have a, maybe a lot more time now to serve in the church or to serve in communities, serve in other ways as well. Like, we shouldn't make our goal just to be, like, completely just self-indulgence, right? So he said, so God is humoring him now. So when Moses says, who am I? So God says, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. So God's answer, what did God not say? God did not tell him, uh, you know, I'm not going to be with you. Uh, I want you to do this on your own without me. Yeah, God did definitely did not tell him you need to do this on your own without me. What else did God not focus on here? Yeah, he didn't focus on the abilities of, of Moses. He didn't say, oh, you know what? You know, you took debate class when you were younger and you know how to you know how to talk to people and your voice sounds so beautiful and and you know, I saw back when you were talking to everybody loves you. No, he didn't say anything positive about Moses. Like he didn't disagree with what Moses was saying. He didn't he didn't say, Who am I? Oh no, you're Moses, you know, you're the arch prophet. He didn't say anything positive about Moses. He said, The reason why you will have success is because I will certainly be with you. Okay? And then he goes on because he, of course, God understands Moses' fears and concerns. And he said, what? And now I'm going to give you signs. And he's just going to start talking about different things that God is going to do to confirm the pre his presence with him. Okay? In order for Moses and for the people to realize and see God's presence, God is going to do signs. The sign here, he says, is when the, you bring the people out of Egypt, you will serve God on this mountain. Like this is this is what I'm promising is going to happen. You are going to lead the people out of Egypt. You're going to bring them to this mountain and you're going to worship me. Okay, that's the first thing that he told them. Okay, what else? Then Moses said to God, okay, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Okay, so he's like, when people ask me who you are, what is it that I should say? Because his big concern now is the people are not going to follow me, so they have to have some motivator, some motivation, some understanding. There has to be something greater that they are going to follow. Okay, so what is your name, God? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent you. Which is kind of a strange answer. You know, before he said, what, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You know, maybe we can understand that answer. Okay, he is a God that historically has acted among the people of the Jews. Okay, but here he's not affiliating himself with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When he, when he asked him, what is your name? He said, my name is I am. So what does that mean? What does it mean for God to say I am? I don't want to use the wrong term, but it's uh, it's kind of like not tradition, uh, but it's it, it's kind of it's like word that goes around. I guess from I mean I guess it could be tradition, but it, like words that w went around from generation to generation of God having the name I am like 
we they like people refer to as the being in this in in heaven as I am, even though some may have not known him. Now it is tradition, yes, but the tradition is based on this, right? So this is like the first time that God reveals Himself in this way. And actually, in John chapter five, when the people are asking the Lord who He is, He says about Himself, "I am." That's always a huge scandal for them. They're like that Jesus is equating himself with the name of God, you know, the name of God which cannot be uttered. And it was clear to them that he is making himself equal with God. You know, some people argue, where is all the evidence in the New Testament that the Lord actually is claiming to be the Son of God? He is claiming to be God when he says, I am, right? So, so but what does I am mean? Uh, this is, it, it, as an answer, it's a question. Does it have anything to do with us terming or referring to Christ as the Logos or, or the Word? Is that, is that? Yes, it does. Okay, what, is, what does the Logos mean? Okay, we, 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 we translate it as being Word, okay? But, but kind of like if you, the, 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 the real meaning is like the reality. The, the the real the the ultimate reality of something right and when god here is saying about himself i am it means that he is the self-existent right he is the only one who is self-existent every other person creature animal thing atom the universe itself is created by him he is the only one who has no creator he's the only one who exists by his very nature is the nature of existence, right? And this is why we cannot probe the origin of God because there is no origin, right? And maybe for us as human beings, we try to wrap our minds around what does it mean for God not to have an origin? What does it mean for him to be eternally existent and eternal? But that is who he is, right? So here when God is saying, I am, he's emphasizing the fact that he is greater than everything because he is the creator of everything. So, so, so I am has sent me to you, the one who exists, the one who is before all things. So it represents God's knowledge, God's power, his, you know, all the omnis, right? Like omnipresent, om omnipotent, omniscient, all these things about God. So, so if I know that this is the God who is speaking with me and sending me on a mission and telling me to do things, I can be completely assured that everything that he says will happen. Right? And everything he asked me to do is the right thing because he is the I am. Okay? So that is his name. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. So he is then relating himself to these past events, but first introducing himself as I am. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations, right? So he is identifying himself with um, that he is the same God who was speaking to Abraham, speaking to Isaac, speaking to Jacob. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, appeared to me, saying, I have surely visited you and seen what is done to you in Egypt. And I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. 
to a land flowing with milk and honey. Who are all these people? He mentioned them before. Living in Canaan. And Canaan is what? Hmm? The promised land, which is? Don't look confused. <laughs> Why? What is? Where is the promised land? Palestine. Oh, I didn't say Palestine. Canaan. Can yeah, is it? It's Canaan. Yeah, yeah it's Canaan. Where is that? <laughs> what is Israel? Right, Israel. Okay, Israel, which was at the time called Canaan. So, who are the Canaanites and all these other people? These are all different races of people that were living in the same land, okay? The term Canaanites can be used to refer to all of them collectively, but it was also used to refer to a specific one of those people who were also called Canaanites, okay? Um, then they will heed your voice, and, they shall and you shall come, you and the elders of Israel, to the king of Egypt, and you shall say to him, The Lord God of Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by a mighty hand. So what would you think now if you're Moses? Yeah. Imagine if God came to you and said, I want you to go to the White House, and I want you to go to President Biden, and I want you to tell him, we want all of the Coptic people in America to let us go and establish our own country. And we're going to take Texas to become the new Coptic, uh, Coptic country. Right? Imagine if, imagine if you were asked to do this. What would, you, how would you feel about? Like, how, what would your response be? It'd be like, there's no way that's gonna happen. Like, there's no way that's gonna happen. And not only that. And then he adds on this little bit, which is, but he's not gonna do it. He's not gonna agree. You know, so it's like, why are you asking me to go if he's not gonna agree? Okay, not even by a mighty hand. Like, like there's going to be severe resistance to this, and you're going to go there and make a fool of yourself, and all the other people are going to see that you went to, to, the, to the president and told him that, and it's going to fail, you know? But I want you to go anyway, okay? <coughs> so I will stretch out my hand. Now this is God's response. It's like God wanted it to fail. Because now that it fails by human means, when simply when just Moses goes and he says to him, let my people go, now God has the opportunity to demonstrate who he is. All right? So he already knows what he's going to do. Once Pharaoh refuses, okay, to let the, 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 the Israelites go, so I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be when you go that you shall not go empty-handed. But every woman shall ask of her neighbor, namely of her who dwells near her house, articles of silver, articles of gold, and clothing, and you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. And this is actually what ended up happening. They asked the people around them to give them their, their jewelry, and they take the, took it out of Egypt with them. So God is preparing the mind of Moses for what to expect. 
Okay, so he's 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 saying, you will go, and you will be you ha- you're gonna go talk to Pharaoh. You're gonna tell him this, and he's not gonna let you go. And that will give me then an opportunity for me to do my wonders to demonstrate. Okay, who I am. Okay, chapter four. Then Moses answered and said, But suppose they do not, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. Suppose they say, The Lord has not appeared to you. Like, what if you are just a crazy man? What if you're just a person who's coming, believing, deluded, thinking that all these things are true, and you're just coming out of the desert, and you're telling us that you're going to go to Pharaoh and let my people go, and God is going to do all these miracles and wonders? You know? Like, like again, like if somebody came to us saying this, we wouldn't just immediately follow them. We wouldn't just immediately think that this was true. Okay? So this is a valid question. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He said, a rod. And he said, cast it on the ground. So he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from it. Then the Lord said to Moses, reach out your hand and take it by the tail. And he reached out his hand and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. So he's, he's, um, he said, I'm going to do miracles. Right. In order for the people to believe that I have sent you, I'm not going to just send you empty handed, but I'm going to send you with these abilities that I'm going to do these things, these wonders uh, among the people with you so that there will be a proof that God is the one who actually sent you. Okay, And the rod actually has a uh, like has a symbolic meaning. I'm going to read for you what Father Tadros Molati says about it. He said, the Lord commanded Moses to cast the rod, which was later called the rod of God, on the ground to become a serpent that swallowed up all the serpents of the Egyptians. God the word is the rod and power of God who descended to earth for our sake. He who knew no sin to be sin for us, to kill all of our sins. That is to say that miracle carried a shadow of the two secrets of incarnation and of the cross. So he's saying what? The Lord became sin in the sense that he accepted sin to himself for our salvation. And sin is represented by the serpent. Okay? So it's like when that rod, who is the Lord Christ, became the serpent, it's like the Lord accepting the sin to himself. Okay? St. Gregory of Nyssa, he also explains. He says, if we accept the teaching concerning the incarnation through an unfit serpent, the truth himself did not reject that analogy, saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. It is obvious that if the father of sin was called a serpent by the Scripture, the offspring of a serpent must by necessity be a serpent. Therefore, sin is equal to him who begets it. The apostle testifies that the Lord became a sin for our sake, having been clothed by our sinful nature. This symbol truly conforms with with the Lord, for if sin is a serpent and the Lord became sin, therefore the logical result becomes obvious to all. Becoming sin, he also became a serpent, which is nothing but sin. For our sake, he became a serpent to swallow up the serpents of the Egyptian wise men and sorcerers. Right? So again, he's emphasizing the same thing, that the Lord became sin for us, and it is through this serpent actually is going to devour the serpents of the wise men and sorcerers when... Moses ends up going to Egypt, okay? (coughs) 
Furthermore, the Lord said to him, Now put your hand in your bosom. And he put his hand in his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And he said, Put your hand in your bosom again. So he put his hand in his bosom again and drew it out of his bosom. And behold, it was restored like his other flesh. Then it will be, if they do not believe you, nor heed the message of the first sign, that they may believe the message of the latter sign. So he now he's giving him a second message. He put his hand in his clothing, took it out, it was leprous. Put it in again and took it out and it was healed. Okay. What does St. Ambrose say about this miracle? Okay. He says that the right hand of God, the Father, is the Son sitting on his right side. Because here Moses was told to put what? To put his, his hand. So according to St. Ambrose, it was his right hand. Okay. Um, he descended to us bearing our sins, and leprosy is a reference to sin. In the Old Testament, whenever someone was leprous, um, it meant that they were sinful, they had committed sin, okay? So the Lord descended to us, bore our sins to cleanse and sanctify us, then to get us back to his Father's bosom, whole and without sin, okay? So again, this is a reference, a symbol of the Lord Christ and how he is able to heal us, take our sins upon himself and heal us of that sin. And it shall be, if they do not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, that you shall take water from the river and pour it on the dry land, the water which you take from the river will become blood on the dry land. Okay, so this third miracle is done to confirm the other two. So if they don't believe the first, they don't believe the second, maybe they'll believe the third. Okay, um, and, and again, this uh, blood is a reference to the salvation that we have through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which sanctifies us. Okay. Then Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither before nor since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and slow of tongue. So he's, again, he's like, it's not enough for me to know your name. It's not enough for me to see the, 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 the wonders and the miracles that you're going to do. Now I'm going a step further and say, now I, I'm not able to speak. I'm not eloquent. And, 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 and notice how he says, neither before nor since. So it's like, in case you didn't realize it, ever since you started talking to me, everything is the same. You haven't given me some kind of special ability to speak, and in order for me to be successful, I need to go and be able to speak to the Egyptians. What Moses believed he needed was eloquence, right? He believed that he needed something in himself to succeed. What God was emphasizing is that it doesn't matter what he is. Everything is going to be provided by God. And this gives us like a very dramatic um, and clear uh, maybe demonstration of the way that we think sometimes. We are so focused on the thing that I think is necessary for success, right? And we look at the thing that we believe is necessary for success. And if we say, if I don't have that thing, I'm going to fail. I'm not going to have success. I'm not going to be able to do, right? Whereas God's focus from the beginning was not on whether Moses was eloquent or anything else, any other characteristic about Moses, but it was about what God is choosing to do through him. Okay. So the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Or who makes the mute, the deaf, the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall say. Moses is continuing these excuses and God is trying to make it clear to him that these are not valid excuses. You know, don't worry about your abilities. 
certainly what God is asking Moses to do here is something that is beyond human, you know, beyond what an individual can just do. And in order for him to succeed, he has to trust in God. And God kept emphasizing this. I am the one who can make you speak. I am the one who can put the words in your mouth. I am the one who can do this and do that. But he said, oh, my Lord, please send by, his, by the hand of whomever else you may send. You know, sometimes when we want to get out of something, we try to find every possible excuse for it. And, we, and when, when, when the first excuse, there's an answer, then we go to the second excuse. And when that has an answer, we go to the third excuse. And then finally, when we've run out of answers, we just say what we really mean, which is, I don't want to do it. S just send somebody else. I don't want to do it. I don't have a reason. Uh, it's not about the eloquence. It's not about this or that. I just don't want to do it. Please send someone else. Okay? And, and the, the, the qualities and the characteristics that Moses had that God was looking for were not the eloquence. You know, they were not these things. They wanted truly... I think, Sharif, you said it before. Truly someone who's obedient. Someone who is really going to follow. And maybe we don't see that in Moses yet, but he will become that. And he will be the one to follow and to obey and to listen and to lead the people, right? Like I said at the beginning uh, last time, that Moses is a character who transforms. He is one who has keeps changing, and we observe and see his transformation happening all throughout um, the Bible. So at this point... When Moses says this to God, says, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is not Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and look, he is also coming out to meet you. When he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. So what did God do here? Kind of like the catchphrase, God doesn't call the qualified, he qualifies the called. Okay, yes. But what is he doing here with Aaron? Pairing him up with Moses because Moses is scared and afraid and he really just doesn't want to do it. And so whenever someone is kind of scared or nervous, you know, you always feel good when you have someone next to you. And so I think that's... But is this what God wants? No. no this is not what God wants, right? No. God did not intend for this. God did not intend for Aaron to be involved like this. This is a concession that God is allowing because Moses feels afraid to do it otherwise. And he knows that this is going to bring comfort to Moses. And so you see God in his gentleness, that even when he talks to us and we're completely wrong, and we continue to be stubborn and we continue to stand against him, he's willing to yield for our own sake. The scripture is full of things like this, okay, where God is willing to yield, right? So, for instance, when the Israelites kept asking God, we want a king, we want a king, we want a king. And God told them, if I give you a king, he's going to mistreat you, he's going to do this and this and this to you and so on. And they said, no, we want a king. He said, okay, I'll give you a king. That wasn't God's original intention. When uh, in the book of Genesis, when the angels came to lead Lot and his family out of the city of Sodom before God destroyed it, he told them, go to the mountains. There you're going to be safe. And the people said, no, 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 we don't want to go to the mountains. Something's going to devour us. We don't, we don't want to go there. So God conceded. And he said, okay, go to this other city. And then after a while, they ended up going to the mountains anyway. So the, the Bible is full of things where God tells the people what is right and what they should do, and then he leaves it up to them. If they choose what is God's choice, it will always be the best outcome. 
But it doesn't mean that even when they make a mistake and they don't choose the best choice, that it just has to end there. It just means maybe they wouldn't have the same best outcome as if they had done what God had asked them to do from the beginning. Okay? So here God is making a concession to Moses. Okay? And he's saying, Aaron, your brother, all right, he's, he's one of the people that's in Egypt. Right? And he's actually going to come out now and meet with you to talk to you about now what's the next step. Now you shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and I will teach you what you shall do. So he shall be your spokesman to the people, and he himself shall be as a mouth for you, and you shall be to him as God. What does that mean? What does it mean that you shall be to him as God? Like he must obey you? Like you, you will, you will guide him in everything that there is to do, and like I will guide you, I, I being God. Yeah. So Moses will receive everything from God, and then Moses will tell Aaron what God has said, and what is that role called? It is the role of a prophet. 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 What's the difference between a prophet and a priest? Priest literally means intercessor so he's on intercedes in the head of the people to god the prophet is the one who receives from god to the people so good like the priest goes from the people to god he did this is the old testament priesthood right the, the priest would take the sacrifices of the people slaughter them and offer them to god on behalf of the people or he would pray on behalf of the people okay the prophet did the reverse the prophet would take the messages from god and declare them to the people Okay, so here this is exactly what Moses is doing. He is taking the whatever it is God is saying, and then he is communicating with Aaron, who would then speak to Pharaoh. And you shall take this rod in your hand with which you shall do the signs. Okay, this is the, the rod that God had done the miracle with. So Moses went and returned to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go and return to my brethren who are in Egypt and see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, go in peace. Right? So he's serious now. He's been convinced that he has to go. He goes to his family, his father-in-law. He says, I have to leave. And his father-in-law allows him to leave. Now the Lord said to Moses in Midian, go, return to Egypt. For all the men who sought your life are dead. All the people that knew what Moses did in the past, were trying to kill him, have died. Then Moses took his wife and his sons and set them on a donkey. And he returned to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the rod of God in his hand. And the Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do all the wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in your heart, in your hand. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. So what do you think about this comment? When God is telling Moses that, that he will harden the heart of Pharaoh so that in the end he will not let the people go. What do you what do you think that means? What is that? Someone on YouTube uh, uh, said like um, like uh, Pharaoh was prideful and wouldn't let his people go. So by the Lord showing him signs and his power, it hardened his heart. So like when Pharaoh was seeing God's power, like he was like that would made him more more stubborn. More stubborn. Yeah. So it was who that was doing the action. Yes, Shvid. Uh, 
the Old Testament, when God is saying it will harden the heart, He means He will lift up His He, he will lift up from them His grace, so as to which the Satan's uh, spirit will enter them, and then they will be hardened in heart. Yeah. So, so what it's actually saying is that God allows a person's heart to be hardened by their own free will, and does not stop their heart from being hardened. So, actually, in Exodus chapter eight. It makes it clear that Pharaoh is the one who hardened his own heart. It says that explicitly, Exodus 8.32, right? Here, it's just phrasing it a different way, right? Saying God is not going to step in and stop Pharaoh by, you know, from, from hardening his heart. In Romans 1, verse 28, it says, even, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Does the reverse apply? We like we do pray like uh, God to soften the hearts of the leaders in the in the litanies, in one of the litanies. Yeah, but that's that's exactly right. We're asking God to send His grace to soften the hearts of the leaders toward the church, so that they would deal with the church in a favorable in a favorable way. And here in this verse in Romans chapter one, it's saying God is giving them over to a debased mind. Meaning what? It means that if I choose to go after sin then God does not stop me. And, and if my mind becomes abased, if my mind becomes um, seared, if my conscience becomes seared, if, if I begin to love the sinful things and become addicted to them, if this is what I choose to go after, God is not going to prevent it from happening, right? Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. It's like if I choose to reject God and I choose to live a life of immorality and sin away from him, God is going to allow it. He, he, he's not going to prevent it. He's not going to say, no, I do not allow you to do this. You know, some people ask, like, why is it that God allowed the uh, Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Why did God even create the tree of knowledge of good and evil? You know, like if that was the only thing that was forbidden, if God hadn't created it, then there wouldn't have been no sin and everything would have been better, Right. But there was no way for us to exercise our free will to choose what is either right or wrong unless there was an option to do wrong. Unless there was something that I could choose with my own will to be wrong. And if God and, 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 and when Eve chose this, God did not stand in her way. He allowed her to choose. You know? So in this sense, you could say, according to this way of, of saying things, that he hardened her heart in the sense that she chose this, right? He did not step in and stop it from happening. Yes. I was about to interrupt and say, like, God, we wouldn't be able to love God without our free will. Exactly. Like, there, there's no way to, to, to show love to anyone without free will. There's, there's no way to express love. Love, by its very nature, has to be free. And that's one of the reasons that God gave us the free will, is so that we can choose. Choose to love or choose not to love. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. But if you refuse to let him go, indeed, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So he's, he's considering, like the Lord is considering all of Israel as like his son. Right? His firstborn son in the sense that they are, they are his first people. Right? They are his people that he has chosen. Okay? And he's saying, I want you to let them go to worship me. Right? But if you refuse to let them go, I will kill your son, your firstborn, which is the last of the plagues, the tenth plague that actually um, happened. But we also have to remember that God is not 
um, does not take joy in the destruction of the wicked. Hear this famous verse in Ezekiel 33:11. It says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from their ways and live. In the end, this is the goal. And, and what was the purpose of the plagues? Like, what is the reason that God allowed all of these plagues? There's many reasons. But what's one of the important reasons of the plagues? Yes. To turn away from, like, because one plague um, is um, follows another plague, and it's worse. So as to um, prevent the worst, out uh, the worst outcome. So, yeah, so they're gradually getting worse and worse, right? So he doesn't, God doesn't want to jump to the very end. He wants to give them an opportunity to repent before things get so bad. Yes? What else? To manifest his glory. To manifest his glory to who? All the people, the Egyptians and the... The Egyptians and the Hebrews, right? So to manifest his glory to the Egyptians. And how did he do so? Each of the plagues uh, like was targeting uh, one of their gods. Yes. Like, for instance, the Egyptians, they worshipped the sun. So God sent darkness. You know, the Egyptians worshipped the Nile. So he turned it into blood. All the things that the Egyptians worshipped, God demonstrated to them that he was more powerful than those gods, more powerful than those things. So even while God is doing all these plagues, obviously, to convince Pharaoh to let the Hebrew people leave Egypt, but he did it in a way to where even the Egyptians themselves could believe that he is the true God because he doesn't want, he's not seeking to destroy the Egyptians. If he wanted to destroy the Egyptians, he could have just destroyed them. But he did it in a way to give them a chance, an opportunity to, con to, to believe in him so that they didn't have to be um, destroyed in the end. And it came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him. Now, this is very interesting. It came to pass on the way at the encampment that the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, Surely you are a husband of blood to me. So he let him go. Then she said, You are a husband of blood because of the circumcision. Right? Like everything seems kind of understandable at this point. And they, they, they decided they're going to go back to Egypt, going to meet with Aaron, let my people go, all these things. We can kind of wrap our minds around it and understand it. But then when you start getting to this, on their way going, now suddenly it says the Lord met him and sought to kill him. And Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet. So what what is happening? What is this? What is circumcision? Covenant between Abraham and God. And who was supposed to be circumcised? All the male Jewish children, right? They're supposed to be circumcised. Okay? This command is in Genesis 17:14. It says, And the uncircumcised male child, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Okay? So, so with that understanding, what happened here? Who is the wife of Moses? 
Zipporah. Zipporah. She's not. She's not Jewish. She is of the the tribe of the, the of Midian. So the 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 Abraham and his uh, maidservant Keturah, one of their sons was Midian. Okay, and also the the Midianites are also um, associated with the Ishmaelites, the son of Ishmael. So they were from Abraham, but they were not of the line of Isaac. Okay, so they believed in God. But they didn't have all those promises of God and everything that the Jewish people had. So, so Zipporah, being a Midianite, she actually um, rejected the idea of her son being circumcised because it was not for her. It was not a commandment. For her, it was not something that she w that she chose to do. Um, Saint Ephraim the Syrian. This is what he says about this. He says at the place where they were spending the night, the Lord came upon Moses and wanted to kill him. Because he had discontinued circumcision in Midian for one of his sons who had not been circumcised, the angel appeared to Moses in anger so that his departure from Midian would not be ridiculed because he had discontinued circumcision without necessity. Now whom should he have feared, God who prescribed circumcision, or his wife who had stood in the way of circumcision? When Moses' wife saw that he was about to die because she had stood in the way of circumcision, about which, on an account of which, he had argued with her that evening, she took a piece of flint and, still trembling from the vision of the angel, circumcised her son, letting him be spattered with his own blood. Then she held the angel's feet and said, I have a husband of blood. Do not cause suffering on the day of the celebration of circumcision. Because there was great joy in the day of Abraham circumcised Isaac, she said, I too have a husband of blood. If you do not refrain from harm on account of me who circumcised my son with my own hands or on account of Moses, refrain on account of the command of circumcision itself, which has been observed. So essentially it's saying that Zipporah did not choose to circumcise her son. And now that Moses was getting ready to return back to his people, he cannot be an example and a model and a leader of the Hebrew people unless he himself is following all the commandments. And so it was on this occasion that there was this, you know, dramatic scene um, in order for him to circumcise his son, which Zipporah, his wife, is the one who had prevented this because that was not in her culture. That was not something she was used to doing. And the Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness and meet Moses. So he went and met him on the mountain of God and kissed him. So Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord who had sent him and all the signs which he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the children of Israel. Okay, so they went, they, 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 they met. Moses told Aaron everything, and, and then they went to the, the elders of Israel, and Aaron spoke all the words which the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then he did the signs in the sight of the people. So the people believed, and when they heard that the Lord had visited the children of Israel and that he looked on their affliction, then they bowed their heads and worship. So Moses did all of the signs for first for the Israelites, right? So that they would know that this is indeed God who sent Moses to them. And it says that they believed and they worshiped God. Okay? So the next step is to see Pharaoh himself. And God willing, next time this is where we will continue. But just keep in your mind the idea that at this point, Moses is convinced, Aaron is convinced, the Israelites are convinced. Everyone believes, everyone worships God, but then we will see very quickly that they forget. 
Okay, many, many, many times. Yes. Still didn't understand the point with Zipporah. Yeah, you said she disagreed with. I mean, I just I just missed a few points. You said that she disagreed with the circumcision, but then she circumcised the child, right? At, at this point, yes. When she saw that she, that the angel was going to kill, some people say kill Moses, some people say kill the child. Um, but when the, she saw the angel coming, she knew why it was the angel was coming, and so she quickly circumcised the child to appease the angel. Wait, I, I missed that verse actually. Uh, the, the angel just appears before them, or okay, I, 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 I mean, it doesn't say the angel disappears, but it stops trying to kill the. Um, no, it, it appears. I, I didn't see that verse. Like I, I was looking down. It says. Uh, the uh, the Lord met him and sought to kill him. Oh. Then Zipporah took a sharp stone and cut off the foreskin of her son and cast it at Moses' feet and said, "Surely you are a husband of blood to me." And that was the end of it, at that okay. point. And what what exactly does the husband of blood signify? So according to what Saint Ephraim of Syrian says, uh, essentially she was saying that she is. It's like she is she is the one who has to like shed the blood of her son for the circumcision. Okay. Um, he, he said what um, I too have a husband of blood if you do not refrain from harm on account of me who circumcised my son with my own hands or on account of Moses refrain on account of the command of the circumcision well this is talking about like how there should be joy on the day of circumcision the way that Isaac also um, there was joy on the day of his circumcision um, yeah, I think I think that's what it's referring to. Yeah, okay. Is it because she shed blood for her son. Mm -hmm. Like you can imagine that was not a comfortable thing for her to do, right? So she's 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 like saying um you know that on account of Moses and the law, right? He she's required to do this. Yeah. <coughs> okay. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing, O Lord, in all things, and that you would grant us your peace. And teach us, O Lord, all these very important lessons that we would learn from the servants, your servants, O Lord, in the Holy Scripture. Help us, O Lord, to have the obedience of Moses, to do, O Lord, what you call us for, even when we are unconvinced, or even when we struggle, O Lord. Grant us, O Lord, peace and knowledge that you work in us with your power and your Holy Spirit, even while we are weak and sinful. Grant us, O Lord, to know you more day by day, and teach us, O Lord, your ways and your kingdom everlasting. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints here, as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace, the peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen. Also with your spirit. <laughs>